Welcome to our first episode in season two of C-Squared, critical conversations that lie at the heart of health justice. This podcast is hosted by the Center of Excellence in Maternal and Child Health Education, Science, and Practice at the Boston University School of Public Health. My name is Emily Rose O'Neill, and thank you for tuning in. Today's conversation is with Leanne O'Reilly, a clinical advocate at Women's Lunch Place. Join our conversation as we talk about the implications of housing instability for the health of women, mothers, and children. This is the first part of our homelessness series, where we'll dive into various determinants and strategies that are connected to this public health reality. Hi, Leanne. Thank you so much for joining us on C-Squared, critical conversations that lie at the heart of health justice. We're so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Emily. I'm really excited to be here. So you serve as the clinical advocate for Women's Lunch Place, which is a women's day shelter in the heart of Boston. And today we'll be exploring how homelessness intersects with maternal and child health. Could you just give us a quick overview of your academic and career background and how you ended up at Women's Lunch Place? Absolutely. So I'm a triple terrier. I went to BU where I majored in political science and gender studies, and then I got my MSW in clinical social work from BU and my um, MPH from BU School of Public Health with concentrations in CAFD and maternal and child health. So lots of BU. And then I ended up at Women's Lunch Place during one of my foundation year internship at the School of Social Work. And I initially didn't think I wanted to work with this population because I you know, had a lot more experience working with college students. But as soon as I started, I just, I really fell in love with the mission and the work we do. And I've, you know, been here ever since um, I was an advocate. And then once I got my, my license, I was promoted to a clinical advocate. So before we talk about homelessness as a public health crisis, I first wanted to establish a definition of homelessness so that we can carry this context with us throughout the rest of our conversation. So what would you say the definition of homelessness is? Is it not having a consistent residence or is it deeper and more complex than that? Yeah, so this is actually a big issue that we grapple with because to get access to certain priorities for housing and other benefits, um, the, the strict definition is that you were staying in a shelter, sleeping outside or sleeping in a place not meant for human habitation. So I believe like HUD sets that definition. However, we know that is a pretty limiting definition and many of our guests are experiencing housing insecurity, but they won't get that priority because they might not be like staying in shelter or they might not have anyone who can verify that they're sleeping outside. When we talk about homelessness, we can talk about it in terms of housing insecurity, things like we call couch surfing where you're staying with family and friends when you're maybe just like, you know, sleeping on someone's couch. I personally would wish we could view that as homelessness for these definitions, but it doesn't meet that strict criteria. We have to work with them. Right. And it's it sounds difficult because you want to make sure you're reaching the people who really need help. Mm-hmm. And that definitely sounds like it can be complex and restricting yes. for sure. As a public health student, we spend a lot of time thinking about health outcomes through the lens of social ecological levels. So could you outline for us how homelessness is a public health concern at the individual, community, and population level? Absolutely. Homelessness is a very complex issue. Um, And I think there is the way that many public health issues, there's no one, you know, cause, there's no one way of framing it. I think it also depends on populations within 
the general population of people experiencing homelessness, you know, women experience homelessness different and it has a different way of framing it as a public health issue. Um, and, you know, when men experience homelessness and then there are also challenges when we look at members of the LGBTQ community when they experience homelessness. So I think it depends on how you frame it and, um, you know, what kind of outcomes you're looking at, what kind of treatments you're looking at, things like that. Right. So in what ways does housing insecurity affect an individual's ability to seek care and to maintain personal health? Oh, I think it affects everything. And I think that's something we really take for granted, especially during the pandemic when we're all, you know, everyone was doing telehealth. Everyone had the opportunity to see their providers online or do phone sessions. My, many of my clients didn't have that. And I mean, when you're homeless, you don't have the privacy to do, have a personal conversation or have, be able to Zoom with your therapist. Um, so we were providing in-person services throughout the pandemic because without it, our clients would already have even more hurdles to get the care they need. I think also when someone doesn't have that stability of having a house and having, you know, a place, a safe place to sleep every night, you're in survival mode. And things that we, you know, like a yearly physical or following up with a specialist, those are all things that when you're just trying to meet your basic needs, doesn't happen. And it can be extremely challenging to find providers who will even accept your insurance because many of our clients have mass health and our many of our undocumented clients, it's almost impossible for them to get certain care without insurance or other resources. Yeah, no, I'm glad that we started talking about some of those challenges. So now that we've spoken a little bit about homelessness as a public health crisis, I'd like to talk more specifically about how the challenges of housing insecurity can be especially difficult and complex for women, mothers, and children. Yeah, I mean, I think families are particularly struggling because unlike single people who can go into certain homeless shelters, getting into family shelter is extremely, extremely difficult. It is very arduous. You have to call Sometimes we even have clients to say, like, show up there, their office and ask to be placed because in Massachusetts, if you meet certain income restrictions and, you know, you qualify, they have to find you and your family a place to stay. That being said, it doesn't always happen the way that it should. You know, I've seen clients who have had to, like, bring their kids to the emergency room because they have no other safe place to stay. And, you know, no one should ever have to sleep outside. But when you have a family, you really can't do that. I mean, it's just, it's very unsafe. So I think that you know, many mothers in particular or people who, you know, have their children with them, there's even less capacity to focus on your health and your needs. And you and your family are constantly in a state of flux and transition. And I think, you know, that lack of security and stability can be very detrimental to every aspect of a person's health and well-being. And especially on children and family dynamics, that can be really, really difficult. Right. And then people, I think, underestimate, you know, I feel like I'm going to say this a bunch of times today, but when we think about stereotypes, how are you supposed to, you know, people always say things like, oh, well, get a job. Can't the parent, like, you know, what are, what are they doing while the kids are in school? Things like that. It's just like, there's so many hoops to jump in through. And when you don't have, when you don't even know where your family's going to be staying, how can you maintain a job? How can you, you know, connect your child to childcare resources? Even for programs through the state that, you know, help fund childcare and like childcare subsidies, it can be so hard to even find a daycare center that will accept it, you know, let alone one that's convenient and nearby. Like one client I've worked with has drive like 40 minutes just to take her daughter to daycare. 
on, and that's not even counting her to me. I think it's the difference between being in survival mode and being in a place where you can think about those other things. Absolutely. And I think that's why I believe strongly in a housing first model for everyone experiencing homelessness. So housing first means that before we focus on all these other things, um, everyone should have stable housing. And, you know, we can kind of build a foundation from there. Because when you're staying in shelter, whether that be as a family, a single individual, a youth, I believe that it's very hard to feel that stability that you need to accomplish some of these other goals, whether it's around like, you know, working on recovery from um, substance use, um, managing your mental health, um, getting access to health care, finding employment, all those different things that, you know, people want to work on. I think it's really unrealistic for us as a society to expect people to figure this all out when you're, you don't have a safe place to stay and you're constantly in a state of insecurity and flux and transition. I mean, thinking about mothers, I would assume the burden of care for children overwhelmingly falls on them. Do you come in contact with a lot of women who who do have dependents who are seeking either shelter or care from your center? And is that a resource that your center offers? Is it just women or is it is it families? You know, we serve women and their children. We've had women come in who are trying to leave an abusive situation or lost their housing and they have their kids with them. So I think as much as we try to be, and as much as we are a very, you know, safe and welcoming space, no kid should have to be in a homeless shelter. And I think, you know, as a day, even as a day shelter, it can be a tough environment just because, you know, you're a kid, you should be, this shouldn't be a part of what you're doing. Definitely have mothers who come in with their kids and it can be a lot because not only are you trying to get work done. So, you know, when someone's in here working on their housing or working on benefits or working on legal issues, you're doing that. But then at the same time, you have your kid here. And then, you know, you're trying to like keep an eye on your kid, work on your benefits. And then we're very busy. We have a lot going on. So it's, it can be very overstimulating for a child. So whenever we have, you know, mothers in with their kids and stuff, sometimes I've had one of our interns color with one of the kids just to try to like give mom some space. So we will, we will certainly help, but I think, you know, it's nice too, that there are other resources as well that we can help connect families to. So I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about domestic violence and homelessness. Yeah. According to the ACLU, domestic violence is actually the leading cause of homelessness among women and children in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a great example of how two different public health concerns, one being IPV and the other being housing and security, yeah. Can be interconnected. So we we frequently deal with um, individuals experiencing intimate partner violence, and I think what many people don't realize is how complex and overwhelming it can be. So um, I think many people assume like you know the hardest step is leaving that abusive relationship, which for some people it is, and it, it takes an immense amount of courage and you know strength to do that. But the way that our system makes individuals who are trying to get resources for domestic violence, the hoops you have to jump through, it can be infuriating. It's almost impossible to get into a domestic violence shelter. I mean, I'll be on the phone with SafeLink, which is kind of like the centralized directory, for hours trying to get someone placed or trying to get families placed. And many times you have to be willing to go anywhere. So the same with family shelter, where it's very hard to get into a family shelter very hard to get into a domestic violence shelter. Sometimes it can be easier if you have children with you, just because some shelters, some domestic violence shelters have carved out services for families, but it's it's very, very difficult. 
The other thing too that can be hard is for housing accessing public housing resources. You need proof to verify any priority. So um, for housing, people get different priorities. So if you're homeless, you get a priority. If you're disabled, physically or mentally, you get a priority. If you're elderly, you get priority. So things like that. And domestic violence, you do get a priority, but for all of them, you have to be able to prove it. And we know that many survivors of intimate partner violence don't feel comfortable reporting or don't have the kind of proof needed to prove their experience and their truth. So a lot of times you have to gather police reports, court documents, restraining orders, medical records. And even then, that's not enough. Even as a licensed clinician, if I, you know, write a letter explaining how my client has, you know, trauma related to her abuse, or I can show our session notes showing these are topics we've discussed, things that we've worked on. That's still not enough for many priorities when it comes to domestic violence. So I would say that we do a terrible job. And that can be, as a provider, that's very hard because, you know, they just did this amazing, courageous thing. And now it's like, and now we have to do this to get you where you need to be. And I'm sure homeless women who are trying to seek reproductive and sexual care That can be challenging in and of itself as well. How do you think clinicians and care providers can effectively reach women who are experiencing homelessness? Yeah, I think with any time you're working with this population, the most important thing is to meet your clients where they're at. So, you know, you need to be flexible. You have to be compassionate. And, you know, just those foundational skills that we know makes a good clinician, like, I feel like sometimes aren't enough. You have to care deeply about you know, providing the care that this population deserves. So coming to a regular standing appointment just isn't possible given what's going on in their life. Um, So being flexible, like you can fit them in when you have time or, you know, urgent things come up. So just having like, you know, being able to be there. I mean, of course, no one could be available 24 seven, but our clients really rely on us and they've been let down by many systems and many people in the past. That for me as a provider, it's it's critical that I don't, you know, repeat those same harmful interactions and that, you know, I am a stable and compassionate provider for them. Um, I think, too, you know, listening, because as clinicians, I think sometimes we have a tendency to think we know everything um, and, you know, do a good job of trying to over explain things. But for me, I try to listen more before I respond because most of the time, most of our clients just want to be heard and they haven't been heard by many, many people. So I think, you know, we can talk about fancy interventions and we can talk about, you know, fancy medical things. But at the end of the day, you're not going to get anywhere unless you build that trust. And it's my job as a provider to earn that trust for my clients. Absolutely. And I wanted to go back to something that you said about many systems failing these people, people not listening to them. What would you say are the biggest challenges in terms of addressing homelessness and how can local communities and larger governmental bodies prioritize this public health concern and where are they missing the mark? Where are they succeeding and everything in between? Where do I start? (laughs) Um, Some days I feel like every single aspect, like every single system we interact with is not meeting the needs the way they should be. I think bureaucracy is like not even enough to describe how challenging it is. Um, For instance, like 
the vast majority of housing applications are by paper. So we have to mail them with stamps. Like you cannot email them. You have to fill them out by hand and mail them. On top of that, they are so confusing. So it took me a while to learn how to fill them out with clients. So we always ask ourselves, how do they expect people to do this without having like someone like our agency? You shouldn't have to depend on an agency like us to be able to get the help you need. But these systems are so complex and so challenging to navigate. And it it has so many odd requirements and so many nuances that if I sat and thought about how bizarre some of these things are, I would even applying for mass health can be difficult. You we usually just mail things in or do it online because of the facts that you need a special facts cover sheet. We're applying for food stamps. You have to do a follow-up interview. But the thing is, a lot of times people don't have a phone because they need food stamps to qualify for an assurance phone, which is a free government phone. I guess what I'm trying to say is all these different agencies and systems do not make it easy. And unfortunately, our clients have to rely a lot on us as providers to help them navigate it. I wish it was just more user-friendly, intuitive. And honestly, sometimes I feel like these systems are designed in a way that it seems like they don't actually want to help people. Right. And it's discouraging someone from... Oh, absolutely. And I hate... One of the things I hate the most as a provider is having to explain to clients, this is how the system works. No, you're not going to get housed in a month because of waiting lists. You know, it doesn't make sense because why would someone be forced to be in this situation? Why should someone who is elderly and disabled and you know, had one really bad thing happen to them then have to stay in a shelter for a year. It, they don't make sense. And I think they're really inhumane. Sometimes I see my job as an advocate as just trying to help them navigate it and help, you know, advocate for my clients within these bigger systems. I feel like I have to do a lot of follow-up emails too, because sometimes papers get lost, things don't get received. Um, they need additional information. And even just getting someone's housing history, that could be really hard for people because it brings back a lot of hard memories. So it could take weeks to go finally get someone's housing history for every application. You need someone's housing history. And then getting vital docs. You need vital docs for so many public assistance programs. But that's so hard because if you don't have your ID, if you don't have your social security card, if you don't have your birth certificate, how do you prove your identity? And when I first started doing this work, I couldn't believe how hard it is to prove you're you. But these are the systems we're navigating. And these are the challenges our clients face. Right. I think this could be a great opportunity for you to talk about what your organization does, what resources you provide to women, and ways that you are innovating in terms of providing resources to homeless women. Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, Women's Lunch Place was my first social work job. So it's very special to my heart. And I am so proud of the work we do. I'll get into all the services we provide. But Above all else, we treat our clients with the dignity and respect they deserve. I'm so, I can't even put into words how grateful I am that I get to do this work and I get to interact with, you know, the clients here. And I think as an organization, we recognize how valuable and how much of an honor it is that our clients come to us. You know, we have direct care, which is kind of your milieu setting. And we have advocacy services, which is where I started. And that's where you can kind of work on any issue that comes up, which is another thing I love about this job because we try not to say no to people. We might say, we can't, we don't specialize in this issue, so let's refer you to another agency. But very, very rarely, if at all, do we ever say, no, we don't handle this. We cannot help you. And I think that's one thing that we do a really great job of. So like some agencies are just just domestic violence shelters. Um, 
or, or just family agencies or just, you know, working on food insecurity or just housing. We, we try to do everything um, and we try to be what we can be for our clients. So we also provide medical care on site through Boston Healthcare for the Homeless, which kind of going back to an earlier question you have about how can providers reach this population? We have a nurse here for people to do kind of drop-in care and to help get connected to larger hospital systems. We also started a new wellness initiative. So we're having recovery groups on site, a smoking cessation class called No Butts, um, which is really, which has been really popular. We're doing more support groups. So I think in addition to like your standard, you know, case management um, and milieu support, we're trying to really build that out and do more to support our clients. And I just, I don't know, I can't say enough good things. I think, you know, the work we do here is really special. And I always say to people, I wish you could spend a day at our agency and get to see what I see because it's just a special place. And I think robust homeless shelters are essential for providing shelter, meals, and other forms of care and resources. Why do you think it's important to have systems in place that are exclusive to women or to women and children in certain contexts? And why are these spaces important compared to general homeless shelters? Yeah, I think the first thing that comes to mind is for many clients, um, being in co-ed spaces um, is very traumatic. Um, I'd say overwhelmingly, a lot of clients have had really harmful traumatic experiences with people who identify as men. And because of that, they're very reluctant to, to be in a space that's co-ed. Anyone who identifies as a woman is welcome at Women's Lunch Place. So we try to be as inclusive as possible. And, you know, we've been working very hard on being LGBTQ friendly too, because that's also another population that can have a very hard time in other places. A lot of our trans guests struggle within larger systems. So when we think of depression, discrimination, that for homeless women, for homeless trans women, it's, in my experience, has been so much worse and so much harder to find a safe place where, you know, they feel like they're accepted. I think the needs of women are different. So we like to talk about how, as a society, we just assume like housing is going to fix everything. But going back to that housing first model, there's other healthcare needs women have. There's other experiences. There's other, you know, supports needed. So I'm proud of the fact that we really try to help women. Women's Lunch Place was originally founded because there was just like a lack of services for women experiencing homelessness. You know, we try to meet that need for women in the city. Are there any other takeaways you'd like the audience to walk away with? Going back to what I was saying before, every harmful stereotype about homelessness, I can tell you, it is false. My clients are so special. They are so resilient. They have gone through so many challenges. And I think that, you know, I'm grateful every single day for the work I get to do. And my hope is that more people will take the time to recognize the realities of homelessness and think about what you as an individual can do as well as society, because there's a lot that people can do that can go a long way. My hope would be that the next time you might see someone sleeping outside, like don't just walk past, you could say hello, you could smile, little things, but we're all people. And I'm, I'm so proud of the work my clients let me do with them. And I just love to see any additional resources that can be given. Absolutely. Well, Leanne, it's been so wonderful to talk with you and our conversation has been incredibly informative and you're so passionate about your work. It's been so great to hear about everything that you and your organization are doing. 
So before you go, I have a few fun questions to close out our interview. So my first is what TV show are you binging right now? I will say I just watched Wednesday and I loved it. I'm obsessed. I've heard it's great. I have to see it. You need to. Like, I'm not a big TV person. I'm obsessed. Yes, I'll definitely look into it. My second is if you could invite one celebrity to dinner next weekend, who would it be and why? (sighs) So many people. Maybe Beyonce because she's so cool and I'm obsessed with her. But I don't know. Maybe that'll change if I think about it more. But that's who came to my head at first. That's a great answer. And then finally, what song, artist, or album do you currently have on repeat? Oh, I mean, I'm a huge Ed Sheeran fan. So anything by him, I love him. Um, I love his music, so he's all over my my, um, Apple Music. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Leanne. We really appreciate your time, and we've learned so much. That's the conclusion of our first episode for season two. Thanks for tuning in. The production of this podcast was supported by Grant GT76MC0001727701 from the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the hosts and guests of this podcast episode and do not necessarily represent the official views of HRSA or HHS.